A reading from Genesis, the 34th chapter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to Dinah's father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you do not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt, while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, 
all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the, Can the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What ancient hope? It's good to be with you this morning. And as we go through the narrative of Jacob that we find in, in Genesis, we come again to a very hard, a very tragic, a very heavy passage. But as the church, that people who have been created and crafted by the word of God, by the, the promise of the gospel that God gives us in his word, we, we come to the text expecting even here for God to meet us. And I do want to say, but before I start this sermon, that, that given the rather graphic nature of this passage, I, I, I'm going to do my best to use language that's, that's sensitive to the diverse age ranges that we have in the congregation. And that will mean that at times stronger and, and more appropriate words to describe the situation um, will be exchanged for less graphic terminology. And, and I, I definitely don't mean to downplay anything that's happening in the passage, but I, I want to be sensitive to, to all of the different ages that we have represented here in the congregation. So let's pray before we confront, before we engage this very difficult passage. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have given us your word and that even here, Lord, we find you in the promise of your gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, um, hands to do, Lord, um, what you mean to tell the church in this passage. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in a, a recent New York Times article, church leader Russell Moore, he was, he was uh, interviewed and he provided the following quote. He said the following. We now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe that the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. And this, of course, is, is coming on the heels of, of numerous scandals throughout the church, many of which have, have functioned as, as cover-ups for, for situations not unlike what we find in this passage of, of women who have been preyed upon just like Dinah has here. And often these, these horrible acts, they're perpetrated by persons teaching sound Christian doctrine. But as Russell Moore points out, the question is whether they actually believed what they were teaching. Is this teaching a functional reality in our lives as a church? And commentators, when they look at this chapter, they point out something interesting. Not once is God actually mentioned in this chapter. 
He's not serving as a functional reality for any of the persons that are perpetrating these horrible and horrid acts. And amidst everything that's happening, we as readers think at least the family of Jacob would reflect the fact that they have a covenant relationship with the one true God. But unfortunately, this does not happen. Shechem and his father, Hamar, they, they come to Jacob in his household, and, and they ask that Dinah be given to Shechem as his wife, and, and this is after Shechem has violated and assaulted Dinah. And Hamar offers to Jacob in his household the following proposition. Become one with us. Become one people with us. And this is an offer to the household of Jacob to, to lose their distinct identity as the covenant community of God, to live like any other village and to live like any other group of people. And of course, this would be a great tragedy. But there's a deep irony here because the village of Shechem and the household of, of Jacob do not behave so differently. They already act as if they are one people. This is perhaps the most enduring and the most dangerous temptation for God's covenant community. If you look throughout the Old Testament, the, the greatest threat to Israel's existence is taking on the lifestyle of the surrounding cultures. And for the church, at least the church in America, this is also our greatest temptation and our greatest threat. Taking on the assumptions of, of our surrounding culture that contrast deeply with what God tells us it means to be a human being in his covenant community. And when this happens, just as it was with the household of Jacob, God ceases to become a functional reality in our lives. We fail to see the world as created, sustained, and redeemed by God, and we fail to see our neighbor, each and every neighbor, each and every person, as someone created in God's very image. People notice, and people should notice. Again, this is what Russell Moore's quote is all about. This is why young people are leaving the church. And so we have to ask, are we conducting our lives in such a way that we are already at one with modern American culture? Have we lost our Christian distinction and have we failed to see the image of God in each and every person we meet? The philosopher Charles Taylor will speak about humans as self-interpreting creatures. Because whether we realize it or not, we're always living out some interpretation of what it means to be human. And what we think a human is, whether that's explicitly or implicitly in our heads, what we think a human is affects the way we live our human life. And this is not a new phenomenon. Ever since the fall, we've had a range of interpretations of what it means to be human, interpretations that let us figure out who we are, decide what we are on our own terms with no reference to God whatsoever, which again is exactly what we find in this passage. 
And then the political scientist Jason Blakely, in, in, in his new book, it's a fantastic book, We Built Reality is, is the title of the book, and he uses this truth to, to powerful effect. He, uh, he points out that, uh, and he's following Taylor here, that, that how we interpret the world, what we think the world is, what we think we are, actually forms us. It actually changes us. It affects how we act. We begin to act like what we think we are. And if we're wrong about that, well, in the process, our humanity and our deep dignity as humans is lost. Our personhood is stolen. And Blakely actually catalogs a number of interpretations that you'll find in our, our culture, but he, he points out one particularly interesting one that has gained more and more popularity, and this is interpreting ourselves as machines, as a kind of complex of biological mechanisms. And Blakely explains that there's actually a very long tradition of understanding the human as simply a kind of, of a machine, and in the process, whatever is the most sophisticated technology at the time, well, that becomes the model. Consider, for instance, the 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes. He, he wrote this of the human back in 1651, around the time of early machines. For what is the heart but a spring? and the nerves but so many strings, and the joints but so many wheels, giving motion to the whole body. And of course, we've, we've moved on from these simple machines, and, and now it's the computer. The computer is the technological template of, of choice, as Blakely points out. And, and if you're interested, he's, he's interacting quite a bit with the work of, the recent work of, of Steven Pinker, who, who often appeals to that imagery. And if we imagine ourselves as big biological computers, as processors that form these algorithms and pattern recognition uh, with the hardware of chemical processes, that's gonna affect the way we live. And of course, we might find some helpful parallels here, and, and of course, the biological is very, very important. But Blakely is saying if we, our, if we reduce ourselves to this notion, we reduce ourselves to something much less than human. This image actually has a big effect on how we treat people. Uh, Blakely references the, the new and, and popular book with the title, Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. And this book offers us a number of ways that we can improve our lives by processing the world like computers do. For instance, it advises us to, to choose a spouse based on the 37% rule. That is, the best place to, to make a decision for a spouse is, is after examining a, a representative set of 37% of, of potential spouses. And therefore, if you're gonna choose to marry someone, you better wait until you're 26.1 years of age, the age needed to be exposed to that representative set, that 37% of people. And the advice is, before then, before your 26.1 years, don't form strong attachments. And the other implication is, any dating before then really should just be about immediate gratification, immediate satisfaction, and, and no eye to lifelong commitment. So in this framework, we, we understand ourselves as computers, or better put, we will be better humans when we start to act like computers.
But this, of course, depersonalizes potential spouses. In some way, shape, or form, the, the other person is reduced to, to a ranking, a kind of, of number that represents their likelihood to best fulfill my romantic and erotic interests. If you heard a group of men audibly rating women that came into a restaurant based on their physical appearance, giving them a number, you would be rightly angry, offended, mad. But here, the whole person is reduced to a ranking that is processed by way of an algorithm fed by a 37% data set. This is no different. This is just as dehumanizing. And how does this relate to the passage at hand? Well, this is only the newest way to dehumanize those around us. We aspire to navigate life like computers, and in the process, we redu reduce people to a set of traits that we find appealing. And this is the kind of thinking in which a culture of sexual assault is readily fostered. And this is an ancient tragedy. While we are here encouraged to reduce another person to a kind of percentage point, the people of Shechem have tragically embraced a mindset that reduces the other person, specifically women, to pieces of property. Because throughout, we see Shechem treating Dinah as exactly this. Commentators point out the rapid sequence by which Shechem's assault upon Dinah is described. He saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated her, and when he's done, he simply goes to his father and demands, get me this girl for my wife. She's simply the object of all of his actions. He will do whatever he sees fit with her, treating her as an instrument for his pleasure. And even worse, when Hamar and Shechem go to the house of Jacob to make this request for marriage, at no point in that conversation do we see an apology, do we see any expression of remorse about what's happened. Instead, when Shechem does finally speak up at the end of the conversation, he speaks of Dinah as simply some object to buy. I'll give you any price for her. Just name it. And at no point in this interaction, at no point in the whole chapter, do we find Hamar and Shechem actually referring to Dinah by name. Each time she's referenced as either her or this girl. And one even wonders, does Shechem actually know Dinah's name? And it gets worse. No one in the village calls Shechem to account in any form. We find out that the assault is well known in the community, in the area. We find that Jacob actually hears about it and knows about it before he's approached by Hamar and Shechem. But when Shechem speaks to the village about how it's in their best self-interest to welcome this household in the community, no one, no one in that group calls him to account for his contact. Either there's a kind of unspoken consent or a collective willingness to just look the other way. And it gets worse. When Simeon and Levi perpetrate the raid on the village, we find that Dinah has to be taken from Shechem's house. And so actually, what we have here is Dinah in a kind of hostage situation. When they come to Jacob's household to request marriage, we have something more like a hostage negotiation. We have your daughter. We have her already. Here are the terms accept them, and we can make this something that benefits both of our parties. Both 
of our interests. And this is what the household of Jacob is invited into. This is what the household of Jacob is invited to become one with. And so what does all this have to do with seeing ourselves as, as machines, as mere biological computers? Well, again, this is only the newest form of a very ancient idolatry. Isaiah 44, in, in the strongest terms, points out the foolishness of making our gods from something that we ourselves have made. Isaiah 44 speaks of the craftsman who cuts down the tree that he himself has planted, grown, and nourished, who uses part of the tree for wood to warm himself and to bake, and then takes the other part of the tree and fashions an idol and makes himself a god. As Isaiah proclaims, and the rest of the tree he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. And what's the result? Well, it's just what Isaiah says. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. We see a tragic irony here. And in the idol, we bow down to the very thing that we have made, and we have our way with it. And the same is true for Shechem. We are told that he longs for and greatly delights in Dinah. But Dinah is not who he loves. What he loves is the feeling that he can forcefully have his way with what he desires most. Sensual pleasure, that's what his God is. That is his idol and he believes he can take it and form it and make it whatever he wants, just like the craftsman who forms the idol out of wood. And why does he fall in humanity? Why do we bow down to what we can force and coerce and have our way with? Because nothing else makes us feel more like gods. To make our own gods is to be greater than any. God. And nothing is more effective in making others instruments of our own self-interest. And so reducing, in the same way, other people to computers is just a new form of this ancient idolatry. The philosopher uh, Mary Midley, and this is from her book, The Myths We Live By, she also warns against this dehumanizing, depersonalizing machine imagery. And, and she actually seems to make a clear reference to this passage of Isaiah when she notes that the similarity between the ancient pagan and the modern technological person. For each of these persons, quote, in his blindness, he bows down to wood and stone, steel and glass, plastic and rubber and silicon of his own devising and sees them as the final truth. What's the final truth of the pagan? We have made, made God, and so we have made ourselves according to our own desires. What's the final truth of a society that worships technology? We have made God, and so made ourselves according to our own desires. And just as with Shechem, this new form of an ancient idolatry has a way of instrumentalizing and dehumanizing others as well as ourselves. 
This is just a new way to reduce us to our bodies, to physical things, introduce other people to what their bodies can do for us. And this just is the philosophy of pornography, something that's mediated to us in increasingly advanced forms of technology, as the philosopher Roger Scruton says of pornography. The face is more or less ignored and in any case endowed with no personality and made party to no human dialogue. Only the organs carry the burden of contact. Organs, unlike faces, can be treated as instruments. We reduce others to instruments of our pleasure and this just is the new sex education for our modern culture. There was a recent uh, American survey on this that showed the majority of, of men and women approve of, of using pornography in some way or another. Interestingly though, the, the one demographic that veered that had a much lower approval was married women, a group of people who have no illusions about the damage that this causes in the human life. But perhaps the most surprising thing of all about this survey was that 47.6% of the persons interviewed, well, they identified themselves as Christians. The village of Shechem invited the household of Jacob to become one with them, and this was a deadly offer. It should have been refused, yet we have often accepted it. We have become one with this culture of instrumentalizing, of exploitation. And we might easily dismiss this 47.6% of people interviewed as simply nominal Christians. However, much evangelical literature on physical intimacy has actually embraced this pornographic ideal. And in the recent and very eye-opening book, The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Ray Gregoire, Rebecca Gregoire Lindenbach, and Joanna Sawaski, the authors point readers to the very first instance of physical intimacy recorded in the scriptures. It's from Genesis 4.1, and it reads, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And the word used for this act of love is new. And the authors explain that this is actually the very same word that we find in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my depths. This is not just a physical knowing, but this is a deep emotional, spiritual, psychological knowing. It's a longing to be known in the deepest parts of ourself. And this is also why if you are a Christian, it is important to marry another Christian so that you might share with the other person your deepest treasure your love for, your knowledge of, your communion with God. Because in this physical intimacy, we are not reduced to mere biological instruments. We are deeply known by one another. But again, the church has often become one with this culture, uh, this, this embrace of the pornographic ideal over the comprehensive and committed act of knowing to which God calls us. And as the authors point out, physical intimacy, even between a lifelong mar- in a lifelong marriage between a man and a woman, 
Well, it can be reduced to an act of biological maintenance. They actually catalog a number of instances in, in books in which this is exactly the case, and all of these are books that have a very wide readership in the evangelical church. As one book states, a husband has a need for physical release through intimacy. They point out that here no mention is made of knowing and communing with each other deeply. Or as another book tells readers, for a husband, intercourse is pure need. His eyes, ears, brain, and emotions get clouded if he doesn't have that release. And as they point out, this, this whole framing brings with it the assumption that the wife be always available to satisfy the husband in any way, at any time he feels a release is needed. And I should also note that, that this notion of a release appeared again and again throughout this literature. And I don't mean to be crass, but one gets the image of a machine that simply needs to let off some steam as part of its proper functioning to avoid overheating. I think Blakely's warning of machine imagery is extremely pertinent here. In this sense, it's no longer an act of knowing and of communing and of one person giving themselves to the other, but simply a release that puts the wife continually at the beck and call of her husband's desires. They also point out that this framing often lays unnecessary guilt upon the wife. They point out that in much of this literature, quote, men are betrayed, sorry, men are portrayed like zombies who need to be kept sedated by giving them enough of the act so they don't find themselves unable to say no to temptation. The wife then not only takes on the burden of the husband's continual need for release, but, the, but if the husband gets pulled into pornography or adultery, well, she holds some of the blame for not being always, ever, and available and ready for this release. And of course, this also assumes that the act is only for the benefit of the husband and not for the wife. And it assumes that men, in a sense, are not to be held accountable for their lust. To be a man, it is assumed, is to lust. The man is just a biological machine, a mix of, of organs that desire release, whether or not he attempts, even by the work of the Holy Spirit, to bring his desires and passions in line with the biblical ethic. And so yes, we find here physical intimacy between a married man and a married woman, but in crucial ways, this is very much at one with our surrounding culture. We have embraced the pornographic ideal, the ideal of Shechem. But the irony gets worse, because the church often does the very same thing for which it condemns the culture. The sons of Jacob hatch a plan. They rightly rescue Dinah, but in the process, they commit the same atrocities and do so on a bigger scale. They attack the men of the village as they recover from the pain of circumcision. And in addition to committing acts of mass murder, they also kidnap a number of women from the village. And all they can say in defense is, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Well, the first implication of this statement is absolutely right. Dinah should not be treated in this way. But the second implication is absolutely wrong. 
the other women of the village are not to be treated this way either. So the sons of Jacob have done the very same thing they've condemned. They've treated these women as pieces of property, as instruments, as tools for their release. And so the household of Jacob does the very same thing as Shechem, but to a greater degree. And as the church, we can often do the same. It's not hard to find instances in which the church has ignored reports of women and enforced them to stay in dangerous relationships, and the church has often done so with what it simply assumes to be proper theology. However, circumcision was never meant to incapacitate men, and theology was never meant to incapacitate women. If it does, we have already become one. We have already treated others as tools for release. We've reduced ourselves and each other to, to bodies, to physical things, to biological computers. Just like the household of Jacob, we have become one with the culture. But in Christ, there is always hope. And if you struggle with pornography, whether you are a male or female, please do recognize the danger here. You are training yourself to see others as mere tools for your desires. The Christian faith is one that recognizes that all of us fall short and all of us have treated others as tools for our self-interest. We've all done this in one way or another. I encourage you to reach out to someone in the congregation if you struggle with this, to, to me, to one of the elders, to someone you know well, let us help you walk through the process of repentance and confession and forgiveness and growth in Christ. We all, all of us stand condemned without the work of Christ, so do not fear condemnation. Do not let it keep you from having the conversation that you need to have. The church is not a place of condemnation, but it's a place for those who know that they deserve condemnation but have received the mercy and love of God instead because of the work of Christ. So then as, as we put all of these things together, we have to ask, so then is the body, is it the body that's the problem? No. Remember what the sons of Jacob misused, the covenant sign and seal of circumcision. That's what they used to incapacitate the men of Shechem. But remember, God creates the body, he sustains the body, and he has given us the covenant sign and seal of circumcision, the visible proof and pledge of his covenant with us. He's given us this in the body. Circumcision is performed on the body. And again, this is the sign and seal of God's covenant with Abraham. Earlier in the fall, we, we spoke of Genesis 15, where God covenants with, with Abraham. And, and as per covenant conventions at the time, you had two parties and you had two animals, or you, sorry, you had slaughtered animals, their pieces on either side, and, and both of the parties would walk through the pieces, in effect saying, if I break my pledge, if I break my word to you, may I end up like these animals? And the other person would do the same. But, but again, as we talked about in Genesis 15, only God walks between the pieces, and in effect, God is saying, Abraham, if I break my pledge, if I break my word to you, may I end up like these animals? And of course, that will never happen. God is unceasingly faithful. 
But God is also saying, Abraham, if you break your pledge, if you break your word to me, may I still be the one who ends up like these animals? And that will happen. And circumcision represents this in the body. Circumcision is the seal and pledge from God. It's the visible pledge by which God promises to make good on his covenant conditions. That faith in God's promise is how we become God's people. Circumcision is God's pledge to us in our bodies that faith alone saves us. And it's an appropriate sign because circumcision includes bleeding. Just as the animals were cut, so too is Abraham cut. But the cutting and the bleeding of circumcision does not sign and seal Abraham's blood, but the blood of another. Abraham's blood is only a prop. It, it's like the ink that God uses to sign a contract because in circumcision, God binds himself to the following condition, to the following contract. Place your faith in my promise and receive my righteousness and I will bring this cutting of flesh upon myself. And as we're told, Abraham believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so what Abraham's blood signed and sealed was his covenant with God, that God would take the punishment, that he would take the butchering, that he would take the slaughtering for Abraham's failure to keep his pledge to God. And what does this mean? Well, it means that the covenant with God is only possible because of a blood substitute the bleeding of something or someone else. In the Old Testament, this is carried out through Old Testament sacrifices of, of animals, but this even ultimately points to the blood of another. Remember that God loves the body, God sustains the body, God has created the body, and God approves the body as an appropriate canvas for the covenant sign and seal of circumcision. But God does something even more to show us just how much he loves the body. Something that shows us that we are no mere biological computer. God, the Son, takes on himself a human body and a human soul. God becomes human. God dignifies the human, the full human, both body and soul, by becoming human. And there's no greater dignity that God could give the human creature. And when God, the Son, becomes human in Christ, we find out how is it that God can become like these slaughtered animals. Well, it's the cross. Because on the cross, Christ in his human nature is torn apart. He suffers the wrath that we deserve, that we all deserve for treating both God and our neighbor as tools of self-interest, as pieces of property, as instruments, as mere biological computers. It is by Christ by God becoming human, that God can fulfill this promise. And Abraham believed this promise and it was counted to him as righteousness and he received the very righteousness of Christ. And by faith, just like Abraham, this is the same righteousness that we receive. And so what we are ultimately left with is, is two offers to become one. The offer to become one with Shechem and the offer to become one with God. And both of these offers have conditions. What is Shechem's offer? Well, become one with us, covenant with us. Give us your daughters and we'll take 
yours. You take ours. Let's instrumentalize the most vulnerable in our midst, whoever they might be in a particular context, and we'll use them for our own gain and self-interest. It's their life for ours. We are the gods. We decide who and what we are, and so we make the rules become one with us. What does God's offer? Become one with me. Covenant with me. I have given my life for yours. I have made myself vulnerable and experienced the most unjust treatment and instrumentalization of fallen humanity and have suffered divine justice and wrath on your behalf. I've lived the life you should have lived but haven't. And by faith, receive my righteousness and give me your guilt. I alone am God and I am greater than you could ever imagine. You are humans and you are a creature more dignified than you could ever dream. And so by the free gift of the gospel, become one with me. These are our only two options, us saying your life for mine or God saying my life for yours. Circumcision is not meant to kill as as the sons of Jacob used it. It's meant to give life, and, and the same is true for the New Testament form of circumcision, baptism, which is administered to both male and female bodies. And the same is true for the church and all of the church's practices. God has given his life for us, and so let us give our lives for one another. We are one with God, not the world. And so we alone can rightly love the world. When we see a person, we don't see a mess of biological mechanisms, but someone whom God created and for whom God the Son became human and gave his life for. And there is no greater dignity than this. Our God is the God who dignifies. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that the logic of our covenant, the grammar of your relationship with us is not our life for the sake of all of these others, but that you have given your life for us. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, that you dignify us. Thank you that you see us as persons that you have made in your own image. And you, you, Father, gave your Son, Jesus Christ, to dignify us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.